let's um, let's go ahead and get on with it. Um, we're actually, if if you're if you're new here, if you're a visitor, I, I should just quickly, very quickly, catch you up on what we've been studying in the scriptures. Um, you probably, most of us, I think, are, are relatively aware of that there's Old and New Testament in the Bible, and uh, the New Testament is largely comprised of uh, letters written by a few individuals, leaders in the church, to ancient churches, uh, communities that, that formed as word went out that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who died for the sins of the world on a Roman cross, came back to life validating who he was and his mission to forgive sins and, and rescue us and the world. And, and this word went out and communities began to form around this, this, this proclamation of who Jesus is, uh, God's love for the world in Christ. Um, and so thus the, the inception of the church. So as the church began to grow and word continued to spread, um, there, was, there was leaders wanting to support these, these followers of Jesus, help, help them to navigate through all their questions and complications of life and, and on, on some very practical levels, help believers figure out. So what, what does, what are the implications of, of Jesus for just real life? Um, now, it doesn't take long, but if you begin to read these letters, you realize that Although it was a long time ago, uh, people were still people even back then. Um, ancient context, same problems. And so it's helpful for us as a church in Portland, 2018, to look at these letters and, um, and, and, and grab a hold of principles, truth, and, and ask the same questions that these believers were undoubtedly asking themselves. What are the implications for Jesus in, in real life in Portland, in our lives today. We've been doing that by looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, because it's the first of two letters written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church in the city of Corinth. Um, now, we took a break for three weeks, in fact, did a bit of a Christmas break, and we're jumping back into it now. We're all the way up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starting in verse 2. So if you have a Bible, if you'd like to grab one out of one of the boxes in the aisle or open on, on your phone or whatever you got, please feel free to do that now. We'll also have some words up there. This is part 17, and uh, I've entitled this Gender Creation and Hats, um, just because that's really the most appropriate title for this passage. So here we go. Now, I am so tempted to just qualify this thing to death before we even start. And you'll see, in a minute, you'll see why. Um, but I'm not going to do that. Um, instead, I want to appeal to you guys. We're about to read through some very interesting, potentially provocative, which is a light way of putting it, words in Scripture. Um, and it's, it's quite possible that you might feel a, an emotional reaction to what we're about to read. Um, I'm appealing to you now. Let's, 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 let's not react, but let's be thoughtful and see if we can't really um, grapple with, with what we're reading here and ask God to help us. Are you guys with me? Okay, so here we go. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember, in, you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, when she should, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Now, the passage actually continues on for a few verses. Um, but guys, we're going to stop there because that is more than enough for us to process this morning. So let's, let's just all take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and process together. Uh, the way we're going we're gonna to go through this, I actually, I'm going to pose four questions. So this is the, the outline of my message. It's is kind of built around four questions. And the first question is simply this. Is Christianity sexist? Okay, we have to ask that question. We absolutely have to ask that question. Um, it would just be dishonest not to. Is Christianity sexist? I'm going to let that question loom uh, for a few minutes. Question number two. What do we do with difficult, potentially offensive passages in the Bible? Now, before we dig right into, like, let's, let's just break this thing apart and see if we can't actually you know, consider the context and the language and, and all these various things um, that help us to understand what, what really is being said. Um, but before we do that, let's, let's take a step back and see if we can't actually use this rather provocative portion of Scripture and, and consider the fact that how we approach this really will um, either help us or hurt us for how we perhaps approach other portions of Scripture. Um, because there's a few of these things in there. Um, and how we deal with this will set a precedent uh, for good or ill uh, in terms of how we process other portions of Scripture, or Scripture in general for that matter. So what do we do with difficult, potentially offensive passages in the Bible? Um, four things. Number one, we could just simply ignore it. Uh, we could tear it out. We could 
just reinvent scripture. We could just sort of write it off. Oh, you know, that's just sort of culture, ancient culture. And, um, and that's that. So we'll just kind of um, we'll just sort of write it off. Um, relatively superficial, I think. Um, not super thoughtful. Um, but that's, I suppose you could do that. And we could do like my, my daughter, Evie. Um, it's so funny. My wife, she bought uh, my six-year-old daughter and eight-year-old boy little devotionals for Christmas. Um, I was pleasantly surprised at how they were totally into it. So they've got these little books, and it gets them like looking up passages in the Bible, like all the classic verses in the Bible, and they're meant to like underline the passage. Only Evie's not quite got the concept of underlining, so instead she simply crosses out. <laughs> so slowly but surely, Evie is crossing out all of like the most important passages <laughs> in my Bible. <clears throat> that would be one approach. Um, we, we don't need to do that. Uh, number two, we could, and I'd say this is probably more common, we could pit Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing these words, against Jesus. And you, you hear people do this, like, oh, I love Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. But I don't know, Paul, he's just, uh, I, we'll just stick with Jesus. Um, I get that, but it's, I think that's relatively arrogant. Because in essence, when we do that, what we're saying is that, well, Obviously, yeah, I know that Paul was living in the first century. Uh, he was undoubtedly there uh, listening to the words of Jesus, quite possibly, um, having firsthand interactions with his disciples. Uh, Paul, of course, literally met the risen Christ um, on a dirt road as he, as he was traveling to Damascus. And so to somehow like pit Paul against Jesus is to say, like, well, we know better. We know, but you know, Paul, he, he gave it a shot, but clearly he, he was a bit confused. So, you know, we'll, we'll just write him off. That, that's, no, that's also quite superficial. Um, if we're, if we're going to know anything about who Jesus actually is, we need to appeal uh, to, to the most authoritative sources, which, of course, are the New Testament writers. These are the eyewitness accounts. So we can't do that. Um, number three, and I would say this is probably the more honest approach. I wouldn't recommend it, but certainly more honest than the first two. We could just simply write off Jesus altogether. We could read a passage like this and be like, you know what? Like, yeah, I'm done, so I will not be coming back here again. And that's just it. It's just, I'm, it's just too offensive. Uh, honestly, I don't even care to think about it. I just, that's it. And you could just walk. Um, well, you could do that. Uh, John chapter 6, just as an example of people doing that. Um, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, a relatively large crowd of his disciples, and he was saying some really, uh, quote-unquote, difficult things. Um, they didn't have any idea what he was on about. But it said that after he said some words, and we won't go into it, that Jesus asked them, do you take offense at this? Of course, he knew that they were offended. And after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Uh, that is an option. Or, number four, um, we could do um, what others, many, many others have done and simply say, Lord, help. Help. John, in that same uh, encounter in John chapter 6, after many turned away and left him, 
says that Jesus then turned to his 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? We've tried everything else. Lord, help. Lord, help. We take a posture of humble honesty. We, uh, in the words, uh, you might remember in Mark chapter 9, the, the father with a young boy uh, who had suffered from childhood came to Jesus and he asked Jesus to heal his son. And uh, Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Uh, this beautifully honest uh, prayer. And so I would encourage anyone, all of us here this morning, as we, as we delve into this, um, guys, let's take a, 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 an attitude of, of humility and, and simply ask Jesus to help us. Let's be totally honest uh, how, about however you feel about this passage. And you might be totally okay with this. You might be like, I, you know, honestly, like, I, don't, I don't get it. This, this, this encourages me. Um, oh, wonderful. Great. Happy for you. Um, it's possible that others don't take that stance. Um, so be honest about that. And then say, Lord, help. Where else am I going to go? I've, I've tried everything else. Help me. Help me to understand what you're saying in your word. Um, help me to have a heart that's soft and receptive. Because, you know, guys, if you are open, um, that is, if you're interested in following Jesus, knowing him, knowing his, his power, his healing, his love, um, as a child of God, there will come moments where your will is crossed. That's, that's how we're changed. Inevitably, we, all of us, I think, at, at varying levels and, and to varying degrees, we attempt to do life one way. And, and functionally speaking, we're sort of our own gods. We kind of call the shots and we, we decide what's true, what's moral, et cetera, et cetera. And, we, and that's just what we do. We sort of recreate God in our own image, um, our image. And that doesn't work. And so we turn to Jesus and we say, okay, help. Um, I, I've tried it my way. Now I want to follow you. Which means Jesus is going to begin to challenge uh, the way we've always done it, the way we've always perceived life, the way we've always understood truth. He's going to begin to mess with, with our perceptions. Um, and that can be, it, it, it essentially destroys the ego. And we will always resist that. We will always resist that. And so we, we cry out to our king and say, Jesus, help. This is a difficult saying. But where else am I going to go? Help my unbelief. So, the question still looms, is Christianity sexist? Okay, not answer the question, um, but I'm just hoping we can, we can get in, in, a, in a position, um, a posture of humility before we, we jump into it. Um, now, if we read this passage in a relatively superficial uh, sense with zero regard for context, language, or any kind of broader consideration for the entirety of Scripture, 
uh, not to mention the work of Christ himself, then yes, one could easily conclude, well, obviously, Christianity and the Bible is sexist, uh, not to mention racist and homophobic and all sorts of other regressive things um, and all that. Yeah, it wouldn't be difficult to come to that conclusion. It wouldn't be unreasonable uh, to go there. Um, But again, I would argue that 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 would be uh, to really do damage to the context of the text. Um, That would be to completely disregard uh, the language and the culture that we're engaging with and the meaning of some of these words and symbols. Um, And probably even more so, that would be to completely disregard uh, the whole of Scripture. What's the story of God? What is the heart of God, and how, is, how are we to make sense out of something like this in that context? So again, let's not, let's not jump to conclusions and simply uh, form a superficial interpretation of the text, but let's be thoughtful. Let's take a step back and think. So let's ask this question. Question number three, what is this passage really saying. Now I get that's, that can be, can almost sound like a bit of a cop-out. Well, I'll tell you what it's really saying. Just read it again. That's what it's really saying. Okay, but that's not what I mean when I pose the question, what is it really saying? It's like when we're trying to communicate with each other, when my wife and I are, are discussing slash having an epic argument. Uh, we're we're kind of, we're talking at each other, we're listening to each other, but we're not really making progress until one of us can say, oh, so what you're really saying, yes, that's, yes, now you're getting me. And so we want to know, what is, what is the passage really saying? Now, a few, um, a few possibilities. Number one, it could be saying what it sounds like it's saying. It, it could, in fact, be saying that women should have short, not have short hair and be wearing hats in church. Um, okay, no guys with hats on. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't mean to be silly. Um, in fact, oh gosh, this girl's got a napkin on her head back there. Um, guys, I shouldn't be silly. It's good to laugh, but, okay, it is a legitimate view. Let me say this. I would argue it is an absolutely legitimate and reasonable view to say, yeah, actually, the passage is clear. Women should cover their heads when we gather to pray and worship. That's, that's not an unreasonable conclusion. I mean, if we're, if we're to be dead honest, like, it would, it would seem, in fact, that that's arguably uh, quite an obvious conclusion. Okay, so I want to be fair. I think, I think we must state that. And in fact, um, I mean, if you spend any time around seminary or, or talk to smart people who know Greek and all of that, um, they'll say, well, it, in fact, the, the evangelical church um, has really done a poor job at, at taking seriously what, in fact, this scripture could, could very well, in fact, be saying. Um, most of the time, we just sort of skip over it and say, oh, it's, it's culture, ancient culture, let's move on. Well, maybe. Um, maybe not. Maybe not, actually. So that is one option. Now, I'm not going to argue for that view. Okay, so just kind of just say that right up front. That is not my conviction. 
And, and if it is yours, I would like to influence you. I'd like to see if I can argue with you. Um, so let me appeal to you now. Personally, I'm convinced that that's not what this passage is saying for several reasons. I'm going to give you two, and then I'm going to give you two resources um, so that you can continue your research on the subject. Number one reason why I don't think that all of the ladies should be wearing uh, head coverings and why it's okay if you're a guy and you have a hat on. First, Paul's argumentation and his appeal to God's design of male and female in creation, because that's, that's, a, um, that's the primary uh, component of his argument, God's design of male and female in creation is primarily concerned with the principle of distinction between man and woman, while the specific application of that principle, i.e. the practice of head covering for women um, and uncovering for men, is just that. Not the primary or direct object of his appeal, but rather an, an external symbol, and Paul uses that word, an external symbol of that principle. That principle, again, being, which is that we are distinct, male and female, and that our distinction as men and women, um, and that in our distinction as men and women, something of the very nature and glory of God is revealed. So, number one, Paul's argumentation and appeal to God's design and creation is directed at not the application, but the principle of distinction between man and woman. His secondary argument is the application of that principle. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Second reason, in support of that, I would say that interpretation, what I've just said, aligns more consistently with the rest of Paul's message and the New Testament in general. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, and in fact, uh, it was a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I suppose, when we were in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I preached a message um, I entitled, Just As You Are. And it's the passage where Paul talks about circumcision. Um, now, circumcision in the ancient world, particularly for Jews, even if you were a Jewish believer, was a really, really big deal. Um, like right up there with keeping a kosher diet. Big, big, big deal. I mean, it, it had everything to do with their identity as God's people. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins, he established a new covenant. Ironically, the passage that I just referred to in John 6 is when Jesus is describing how that new covenant, covenant is to be inaugurated. He says, you have to eat of my flesh, you have to drink my blood. And he's talking about how this new covenant is going to become a reality. And it's totally offensive. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul makes this very bold assertion. He says, circumcision is and always was, in fact, an external symbol of a more profound, spiritual, eternal reality. And he says, therefore, circumcision counts for nothing, nor uncircumcision counts for anything. 
But what really matters is the heart. And he makes the same argument to do with uh, the, the, the dietary restrictions, the kosher diet. The whole book of Galatians is basically that argument. Why it doesn't matter what you eat. That was always an external symbol. That was a shadow of a greater substance. That is Christ who has now come and just changed everything. That's not to say the symbol never did or doesn't matter. Because what we do with our bodies absolutely matters. It's, our bodies are meaningful. Um, and how we present our bodies and steward our bodies um, matters. Absolutely matters. But if we were to argue that Paul goes to great lengths to make the point that something as significant as the symbol of circumcision now no longer matters and makes that same argument concerning uh, the, the kosher diet. And what he says what actually matters, what always matters, is the heart. And he makes this uh, statement in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. He says, circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. It would be inconsistent to say something as significant as circumcision doesn't matter because it was always about the heart. And something as significant as the diet uh, laws don't matter because it's always about the heart. But what does matter, ladies, get your hats on. Okay, I'm sorry I'm being a little cheeky. I, I don't mean to. Um, but I, I actually feel quite strongly about it. We need to step back and consider the entire breadth of scripture and make sure that our praxology, that is uh, our, our, our traditions and the things, our applications of orthodoxy align with the heart of the gospel, which isn't about keeping the letter of the law, but it's about the heart. Are you guys with me? Now, so those are my two main reasons and I promised you there's two resources. So you can take a picture of this your phones will, will do that because there's no way you're going to remember it. But that's, that's as best as I could do for you. Benjamin L. Merkel, professor of New Testament and Greek at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes for the Gospel Coalition, a very conservative um, and very scholarly online resource. And Daniel B. Wallace, professor of New Testament studies and also a Greek scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary, a very renowned conservative cemetery. Uh, they both make uh, quite in-depth arguments uh, for the stance that I'm uh, supporting. So if you can get a picture of that, and if you can't, you can, I, I'll get it to you somehow later. Um, that's, that's some resources for you. Okay, so now I know that some of you are thinking, you, you've, you've not convinced me at all. There's way, way more that need to be said. You're not considering this. You're not, I, I know, I know. Um, but guys, I've only got so much time. Okay, I've given you two things to think about and to chew on, and um, there's, I'm sure there's a lot more that we can process together. Um, but I hope that's helpful. Now, what is this passage? So if I've kind of attempted to um, dismantle what is arguably the, the obvious interpretation of this scripture, um, what, what, what is it saying? Okay, if it's not saying that, then what is Paul actually saying? Let's, let's go there. I'll say two things. Number one, 
men and women, specifically husbands and wives, are uniquely and wonderfully different. The thrust of Paul's argument, he says, what I want you to understand is the distinction between men and women, specifically uh, husbands and wives. We have been designed, created in such a way so as to complement or glorify the other. And if lived out in love, and Paul goes on to make a really, really big deal about that as we get further along in the letter, specifically 1 Corinthians 13. If we live that distinction out in love, our diversity, the way in which husband and wives uniquely relate to each other, is meant to reveal something utterly mysterious and beautiful about the very nature of our triune relational creator. Number two, what else is this passage saying? It's saying that how we demonstrate that, the, the application of that principle in a culture that is utterly confused about what God is really like, really matters. So we can't just say, well, it's simply about the principle and completely not even think about, well, but then what does that look like? If it looked like a woman having long hair and head covered and a man having short hair and head uncovered, if it looked like that, if that was the meaningful symbol in the ancient context, well, what's the application look like for us? Because if we were to somehow superimpose that ancient symbol on our context here and now, I'm, I'm afraid what the message would be is that women are to be humiliated and dominated by their husbands. And you may not agree with that. You may think that's a bit extreme, but I said it. So what is the appropriate symbol? Interestingly, it's not uncommon for a lot of men to remove their hats in church. So you could say that that's, that could be a, a legit symbol, taking your hat off um, as a sign of, of reverence, as a sign of submission to God, mm -hmm. as, a, as a means of saying, um, I, I'm trusting my Savior, I'm trusting my King, I'm revering my God. To be honest with you, and, and maybe, you, maybe you have some ideas, maybe you can, you can discover some things in your reading. Uh, I don't really know. Honestly, I don't know what a, a better symbol might be. Um, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm still open to, to the whole head covering thing. Um, in fact, there's, there's a lot of churches. And it does, even today in, in our modern age, probably not so much in our Western culture, but it's still very much the appropriate symbol um, to, to exhibit that, that principle of distinction between man and wife. It, it does make sense in certain cultures. Not so much in ours, I would argue. Um, it's helpful to remember at this point that uh, Corinth, we studied this uh, early on in the book of 1 Corinthians, was known um, as, a, as a city of sexual exploitation. It was a harbor town. It was a port town. Um, and it had a, 
a rich, uh, rich isn't the right word, an awful, deep, intense uh, tradition of temple prostitution and sexual exploitation. Women were worth nothing in this society. Um, Certainly women who had grown up as prostitutes, simply bodies to be used for sexual exploitation, quote-unquote worship, uh, demonic worship. That's their context, which is very interesting to note because um, it wouldn't be difficult to imagine that these women would have, would have been like, look, I have been dominated my entire life. Never, ever again will a man do that to me. That's their context. That is their context. Um, it's not entirely unlike ours in a lot of ways. Um, Portland, I don't know if you know this, but according to um, different uh, police reports and, and various stats um, that I've found online, uh, Portland has the highest grossing commercial sex industry per capita in North America. It's our town. We need to go to question four. And then we're going to start to, to land this. What does the Bible mean by, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Do you get the circular connection there? I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The head of God the Son is God the Father. Number one, headship begins with Christ. Christ, who never lorded over um, or ruled over, to use the words out of uh, Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into creation, creation fell. It said the woman would desire her husband, but he would rule over her. That's a result of the fall. Headship begins with Christ, who never lorded over those who looked to him, but rather he humbly relinquished every one of his rights so as to come under, serve, and give his life for his bride. That's headship in Christ, at least the starting point. Which means in Christ, power is utilized for building up and serving others. That is the purpose of power in Christ, to come under, to serve, to build up, to give up rights for the sake of other. That's Christian headship. Number two, headship is demonstrated in marriage when a wife allows her husband to serve her like Jesus When a woman, although 100% equal to her husband, just as God the Son is one with God the Father, it's interesting, that same word one, echad, that's used to describe the oneness of God is the same word that's used to describe the oneness of male and female. We are one. We are equal. 
Although 100% equal to her husband, just as God the Son is to God the Father, when she freely chooses, when she freely chooses to allow her husband to serve her like Jesus, and he's able to fulfill his distinct role, as she fulfills her distinct role of freely becoming vulnerable to her husband so that he might become more like Christ, that he might fulfill his distinct role of sacrificially serving and covering his wife the way Jesus covers us all. It has nothing to do with who gets to boss who around. Just ask my wife. Uh, the cool thing is that I, I have zero interest in, in being the boss of my wife. Uh, it's just not in my demeanor. I, I, don't, I don't desire it. I don't, I don't want to command my wife or somehow rule over her or boss her around. Um, not that she would let me, even if I, I wanted to. It would never happen. It would never happen. Um, and thankfully, that's not what, what headship is in Christ. It's about a husband and a wife demonstrating something, something profoundly beautiful and mysterious about the very heart of God. It's a picture of a king full of power and divine worth who freely chooses to trust and become vulnerable so that God, his father, might raise him up fully loved and fully secure. It's a, it's a picture of trust and vulnerability. It's the perfect container for Christ-like love. And it's a picture of what God is like. That's why Paul, elsewhere, he refers to marriage as this, this profound mystery that unveils the gospel. It's, a, it's actually a picture of how Jesus loves the church, which is his bride. Men, we are the bride of Christ and women. Let me say a couple closing comments and then we're going to uh, respond by taking communion. Um, number one, if you are a man and you somehow have got it in your head that you have the right to use your power power you think you have to dominate, abuse, or in any other way exploit a woman, you will be judged. Because we have a God in heaven who is a king who has power and has the ability to destroy body and soul in hell. And if you think that you are given strength to abuse and dominate someone that you've been entrusted to lovingly serve and sacrifice your life for, you will be judged by God. God takes it very, very seriously. And unless you repent and confess your sin and turn to Jesus, who was beat and abused for your sin... You will suffer the awful consequences of your sin as you stand before our God. 
That sort of thinking and behavior has absolutely no place in the church or the kingdom of God. And where it does exist, it's demonic. You need to stop. You need to stop thinking that way. You need to allow Jesus to renew your mind. Let him forgive you. Let him cleanse you. Let him give you his heart so that you can experience true strength. If you're a woman, um, please bear with me. No idea, I'm not a woman. Couldn't possibly imagine what it would feel like to be dominated by a man or somehow abused or exploited. Um, I think the closest experience I have is um, the time I was uh, assaulted. I was on a beach. It was late at night. Shouldn't have been there in Long Beach. And uh, some guy, big guy, comes up out of nowhere. Him and a girl. He had a, I guess like his girlfriend with him. And he, uh, he walked up to me without a chance to even think about what was happening. He had me on the ground. He had complete domination over me. I was terrified. He made me take my clothes off. He put his boot on my neck and pinned me to the ground. For years, for years, I had to deal with the shame of that moment. Shame. That was the overwhelming feeling was shame. Why didn't I do something? Why didn't I have the power? Why didn't I have the courage? Why didn't I fight back? The very strong temptation that, that I've, I've had to wrestle with is, is to not just react. It's to not determine in my heart that I will never, ever, ever be dominated by another human being again. I will be the dominator. I've had to resist that temptation to allow my heart to harden so that I I go about now relating with people and situations out of a place of fear, which is no way to live. And if you've experienced that, man or woman, I, I guess, my appeal to you is please trust again. Allow Jesus to, to heal your heart so that you can be vulnerable again, so that you can trust again, so that we as men and women can relate to one another in a way that actually reflects the heart of God, that we're not against each other, we're not in competition. It's not a power struggle. We have been designed by God to demonstrate something that's so utterly beautiful, mysterious, to be fair, but beautiful. I don't know who has the harder job. I reckon it's probably equal. Can we stand together, please?
Lord Jesus, I pray that um, as we continue to process these things, talk about these things, um, even meet together in ecclesias this week, um, voice, voice our thoughts, share our opinions, but ultimately, Lord, put our hearts before you. Lord, our prayer is, uh, Jesus, help. Help us. Uh, we we are, are fragile creatures, but you know us. You know where our hurts lie. You know where our fears have taken over. Lord, it, it would seem uh, the world we live in uh, struggles to figure out how, how do men and women relate to one another and honor each other. Father, I believe you, you know exactly how that's meant to work. You have a beautiful vision for how that's meant to work. And I pray that you would, you would give us that vision. I pray that you would open our hearts and allow us to see uh, your beauty and empower us to be your children, to be like you are. In Jesus' name, amen.